0: Uh, if you brought your Bibles, you can open them to the Gospel of Mark. Man, I cannot wait to begin this teaching series. It's going to take us uh, really all the way up to to the end of this year, uh, um, and. Uh, it's one of those things that, uh, man, I've been studying it and studying it and studying it. And like I said, I'm just, I'm just totally falling in love. And so today we're going to dig in a little bit to the scripture, a little bit into the text, but I want to begin with uh, the good German phrase, Sitz in Leben. And I, I don't know how to have a German accent. Clint, you may have not. Uh... Sitz, in Sitz in Leben. There you go. I knew he would know. Um, Sitzeleben is a German phrase. It just means situation in life. And so, as we get into Mark, I want to I want to tell you a little bit about where it sits and how it sits in the world, uh, who wrote it, and, and and what when did they write it. And so, we want to talk about this situation in life, the context a little bit. I'm going to start by showing you a couple of paintings. This, it are, these are paintings of John Mark or representations of uh, what we think John Mark looks like. And I don't know if you guys can tell, the lights are kind of bright. Rob, can we drop those lights a little bit? Maybe you can see. You see over here in the corner of John Mark, and I know it's really dark in this one, in the, in the background of these paintings or John Mark are these beasts. They look like tigers or lions. So have any of you ever been to Venice... All right, so Venice is a great place, and in Venice, one of the key place, one of the key tourist places that you have to go to is right in the middle of Venice. It is St. Mark's Square. That's right. His cathedral is right there, and if you've ever been to St. Mark's Square, there's a giant pillar, and on top of that pillar sits a what? A lion, a winged lion. So St. Mark is the patron saint of the city of Venice, and uh, the, the, the animal, the, the anime character, I don't know what it is, of, of Venice is this, is this lion figure. And, and it comes across even in the, in the way that John Mark writes this gospel. As he writes his words, you, you see this expression almost uh, in the very first verses. John the Baptist is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Do you get this kind of lion idea? Are you with me? John Mark was, uh, we, we, uh, we, we know he was a Jew living in the city of Jerusalem. His mom owned a house in Jerusalem. And right as the early church was forming, uh, right as it was beginning in its infancy, we know that some of the disciples, some of the apostles of Jesus went to John Mark's house they actually met in his home. The early church met in his home. So you can say he grew up in the church. John Mark is, is this, uh, this guy who spent time, even as a kid, even as a youngster, around the, 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 the disciples of Jesus. And when Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas is the cousin of John Mark, go on a missionary journey, guess who joins them? Guess who tags along? Mark. But he gets a little bit chicken during the way and bails out. It's a sin that Paul never or eventually does forgive him for. But Mark also assisted Peter in some of his missionary journeys. You guys remember this character of Peter gives a great brave heart speech about Christ in Acts chapter 2. Does all of these incredible works. And uh, Peter will later talk about John Mark or talk about Mark as being so close to him. Peter refers to Mark as his own son. I don't know if you guys know, but uh, uh, Peter was martyred for his faith uh, in, in between 60, 70 A.D., right, uh, of, about 30 years after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter was a witness of all of these things and then goes out and is sharing the gospel and is in Rome and there's an evil ruler of Rome. This guy you may have heard of, his name is Nero. Do you remember this? Nero begins with this horrible persecution of the church and in that persecution, Peter is martyred for his faith. And with Peter's death, it signals kind of the the end of an era and the beginning of a new era. Because around from Peter's death to about 100 AD, all of the eyewitnesses of, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, all of the eyewitnesses of his life are now beginning to die off. And up to Peter's death, all of the the good news of Jesus Christ, the story of the gospel, it's all been translated or it's all been communicated orally. But with Peter's death and the beginning of the death of of some of these eyewitnesses, it becomes necessary to to have people who will write down this story, who who will record it. And early historians recorded that Mark, who Peter referred to as his own son, that Mark was an interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. So imagine how much time do you think Mark and Peter spent together? Just a little bit or a lot. If Peter refers to him as his own son, they've spent a lot of time together. And, And for 30 years from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter has had one purpose in life, and that is to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And Mark has been with him a ton of that time. How many times do you think he has heard the gospel? Probably a few, right? Probably a lot, and so, when you read Mark, what you are reading is this, this uh, recitation, this, this oral history, this, this sermon, this teaching, this story of Jesus Christ as told by Peter, his eyewitness. And there's this awesome characteristic that happens in Mark as we think about some of these characteristics. Um, uh, when I get a new teaching inside of me, uh, my, even my wife knows this, I just start getting anxious. Like I, I start studying and I, and I start building up and, and, and I'm standing on the back and I'm about to tackle Philip off the stage because I'm ready to give this teaching. It's, it, it's come inside of me. It's done this work inside of me. It's it started to come alive inside of me. And I've I'm, I'm, just, I'm just desperate. I got to give it birth, if that makes sense. And Mark is that exact same way. Like like the way he speaks and the way he moves through Mark, he uses the words immediately and straight away a bunch. Like you can tell he's excited. He's enthusiastic. He, He has heard this teaching. He has heard this message. He has heard the story of Jesus so many times. He just can't wait to get it out. It is a, a, a transcript from life, written from the viewpoint of loving, vivid recollection. And you can tell that, that you, Peter's persecution is in there. There's a lot of talk about standing up in the face of trials and in persecution and all this kind of stuff. You, you, you can get a feel of Peter, but also Mark, as you read this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. Mark is uh, geographically driven if, you, uh, if you're going to break it down, the, the first eight chapters, Jesus bounces from village to village to village to village and does miracles and has teachings. But really, the last eight chapters, it's all about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is the place of, of religious authority. It is the place where it is going to happen. And so uh, some people talk about uh, Mark as, as a, an extended passion narrative with, with a, a, an extended introduction. Because really, of 16 chapters, more than 8 of them talk about the passion of Christ, talk about his last days, his last teachings in Jerusalem. Mark is, uh, is in a lot of sense, the, the most real, or gives us the most real picture of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, of any of the Gospels. In Mark, Jesus loves, and in Mark, Jesus feels compassion. In Mark, we see that Jesus holds kids in his arms, Jesus feels hungry, gets tired, and needs rest. Mark writes with this kind of plain Greek. Uh, it, is, uh, it is sitting around the Waffle House kind of Greek, not, a, not, a, not at a fancy you know, white tablecloth kind of Greek, if that makes sense. This is, this is a plain kind of speech, no fancy language. And you can tell he delights to tell the facts of Jesus' life in, in the simplest and most dramatic way he possibly can. But there's another side of Mark's gospel. Uh, In the early 20th century, there was a theologian named Rudolf Otto, and he wrote a book uh, uh, talking about God, defining God. Uh, His book was called The Idea of the Holy, and in this book, he uses a Latin phrase to define God. It's a phrase that fits perfectly for, for Mark and what he's trying to do in his gospel. The phrase is mysterium tremendum ac fasciosum. When I told my wife this, she said, did you just cast a spell on me from Harry Potter? Like she had no idea what's going on. Mysterium tremendum ac fasciosum. Any Latin scholars in here? Anyone know what I just said? Anyone know what I had to look it up to you? It's okay. Mysterium tremendum act faciosum means the terrifying and fascinating mystery. When Rudolf Otto described God or offered a definition of God and all of His holiness, he said, God is like a terrifying and fascinating mystery. It's the kind of mystery that uh, that uh, scares you to death and amazes you at the same time. It's the kind of mystery that that pushes you away and attracts you at the exact same time. Let me see if I can give you some examples. When I was a kid growing up in a, a Abilene, Texas, we lived there for a few years. It's a horrible place. Never visit. Lovely people. Um, flat. You can see for a hundred miles in any direction. It's just kind of scrub brush, super hot, dusty place. I remember as a kid, maybe in the fifth or sixth grade, I was outside and we were playing in the street in front of our house because we used to play in the street. That's just where you played as a kid. Um, And a tornado came. And we could see this tornado. All of a sudden, the sirens go off and the clouds get dark. And, and so this is not a necessarily uncommon occurrence that happens in this part of Texas. And while we were standing outside, we watched a tornado come down and touch down not far from our house. Now, thankfully, it wasn't coming near us. But we watched in, in just awe and amazement as this tornado cut a path. Through the countryside now what should we have done we should have run we should have gone to the the the, the cellar or the basement or the storm shelter or something but we couldn't that's mysterium tremendum act faciosum. are you with me it is this thing that is so powerful and so awe-inspiring and so terrifying that every part of you says, oh man, we should get out of here. But you just can't. My dad talked about this, as uh, the idea of uh, Niagara Falls. Have any of you been to Niagara Falls? So Niagara Falls is this incredibly powerful waterfall place. But a waterfall almost doesn't do justice to it, does it? I mean, if you've been there, the sound and, and, and there's this lookout. This is a picture from the lookout right on the edge Right, And that is the perfect description of, of what's happening in Mark. He invites you right to the edge of the power and the mystery, and you should be terrified, and you shouldn't go near the edge. You know, And the moms are holding their kids next to this edge because you don't go past the rails, and even being next to the rails makes you afraid. But at the same time, the sheer power and magnitude of it is absolutely fascinating. Some people are so fascinated that they even climb into barrels and try to go over it. There's this great quote from the the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Susan is having this conversation with Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the lion. You guys remember this scene? At this point, the kids haven't met Aslan yet, and they're, they're expecting to meet this king And they find out, Susan finds out, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, oh, I I thought he was a man. And then she asks, is he quite safe? I I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver's reply is perfect. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mark's gospel is filled with these kinds of moments, uh, moments and experiences that, that we get to experience vicariously as readers as we hear the story of Jesus Christ. But but the people in the story, they there are moment after moment after moment that they feel like maybe they should run, but they can't. It is that perfect balance of, of, of fear and amazement that literally struck. maybe the two most frequently repeated words in mark are the words amazed and terrified now before we get into mark chapter one let me show you a little bit more of what i what i mean let me give you some examples In Mark chapter 5, Jesus and the disciples are are in a boat and they come across the sea and they they land on a shore and a wild man comes running out of the graveyard. He has broken chains hanging from his wrist, cuts and scrapes. Can you imagine the kind of vocalizations that are coming out of him? Ah! You know, he comes screaming out of the graveyard. That was the funnest thing I ever just did in teaching. (laughs) That's what you're thinking about this sermon right now. Um, he comes screaming. It's a crazy man. And they've already heard stories because everybody's heard the stories about him. They can't bind him up. They, they, they can't tie him down. Every, every, every chance he's escaped and he's got free, and he runs up to the disciples and to Jesus and a demon speaks from inside of him and names himself as Legion. And Jesus casts this demon, this Legion, written to a Roman audience. See where this these things kind of tie in. Where's Peter at? He's in Rome. The demon's name is Legion. And Jesus cast this demon, this Legion, into a herd of swine who immediately drown themselves. The, the pig herders can't believe what they've seen, and they run to the village, and they tell everyone, this guy cast or something and our, drowned all our pigs. And the whole village comes and runs, and what do they find? This is, this is a per, mysterium tremendum act They find Jesus and the disciples and the previously wild guy sitting around the campfire, but he's not screaming or howling. Scripture says he is in his right mind. And what do the people feel? When they see him sitting there in his right mind, Mark says, they're terrified. And in a few verses later, verses 19 through 20 of chapter 5, Jesus instructs the, the, the ex-legion guy, I guess, And Jesus instructs him to go home and tell everyone what God has done for him, to tell everyone about the mercy that God has shown on him. But he doesn't go home. He goes to the ten villages in that area, all of them who who have heard the rumors, who have heard the stories. He goes to all of those villages and begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And it says, everyone was amazed. In chapter 6, Jesus returns to his own hometown in Nazareth. And in in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Many who heard were amazed. They wonder, where did he get all the wisdom and the power to to perform these miracles? And those who heard were amazed. And they want to make excuses. This guy is just a carpenter. This guy must be out of his mind. A little later in chapter 6, uh, 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 chapter six verses 47 through 53. I don't know if I put those on the screen. Yeah, I did. Late that night, the disciples were in the boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw that they were in serious trouble. A storm had come, and they were rowing hard against the wind and the waves. About 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on water. And he intended to go past them, but when they saw him walking on water, they cried out And what's the word? Thinking he was a ghost. And Jesus, who calms a raging storm that's that's threatening to sink their boat, he calms the storm with just a word. There's another great story in, uh, in chapter 10, verses 32. Go ahead and throw that up there, Rob. I think you I have that. Maybe I don't have it. Uh, in chapter 10, verses 32, Jesus is walking out. Oh, there it is. Uh, it says, now they were on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe. There's that word, right? Dumbstruck, amazement. And the people following behind were overwhelmed with what? fascination, and fear all wrapped up in this person of Jesus. There's another great story that comes out of chapter 5. Uh, a man named Jairus approaches Jesus because his daughter is sick. Jesus goes to, to heal his daughter, but on the way he finds out that the, that the girl has died. She has no pulse. She has no, no heartbeat. And Jesus informs them that she's not dead. She's just asleep. And he calls her to wake up. And scripture says she gets up and walks around. And in chapter 5, verses 42, and the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. And they were what? Overwhelmed. And totally amazed. Here in Mark is the mysterium tremendum. The same Jesus who multiply loaves, loaves of bread and cradles little children in his arms. Also heals the sick, touches lepers, casts out demons, overturns the money changers' tables in the temple. Calms a raging sea, teaches with heavenly authority, and yes, raises... The dead. Look what chapter 4, verse 11 says. Jesus tells the disciples in relation to the parables, He says, You are permitted to understand. The New Living Translation uses the word secret, but the word in Greek is mysterion. He says, You are permitted to understand. You are permitted to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. That word uh, mystery, that word secret, that word mysterion is, is not something unknowable. It, it's not something unattainable. Rather, it is, in, in the Bible, the word mysterion is that thing that can only be known through revelation. The mysterion of God, all of his power, all of his wonder, all of his strength, all of his supremacy, all of his compassion, all of his love, all of his holiness is not something unknowable. It is not out of reach, but can be known because there is one who has come to reveal the mysterium tremendum to us. Can I get an amen? The good news is is the one who can bridge the gap between all the holiness of God and all of the humanness of us has come. And that's exactly where Mark begins. Let's look at the first 15 verses of the first chapter of Mark together. The very first words of Mark. He doesn't pull any punches, but dive straight into it. This is the, what are those two words? This is the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in... The wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locust and wild honey, John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the mysterium tremendum act faciosum. Are you with me? He will baptize you with the holiness of God. And one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee And John baptized him in the Jordan River. And as Jesus came out of the water, he saw, you remember this awesome scene, the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and angels took care of him. And later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. And look at this last sentence in this section. Jesus says, The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. I love um, the way Mark's uh, Mark begins his gospel, but it's not very Christmassy. <laughs> uh, we don't we don't uh, use Mark uh, in our our Christmas celebration or our Christmas decorations. Um, Uh, There is, it's not a very good Christmas gospel. There's no nativity, there's no virgin birth, there's no angels, there's no mangers, there's no stars, there's no wise men. If we did use Mark's gospel to celebrate Christmas, uh, uh, we would would have, if if this was going to be our Christmas gospel, what we would have instead of a, a Christmas tree and all of these other things, we would have a massive baptism celebration where everyone is encouraged to confess and repent and be baptized. John doesn't pull any punches. This begins, this is the good news of Christ, the Son of God. And he begins not with Jesus' birth, but with prophecy. And you, you encounter from the very beginning this very odd, odd man, John the Baptist, right? Right? He's dressed kind of like in resemblance to the prophets of old, to the prophets of Elijah. He's a wild man. He's a wilderness man. Uh, Wilderness is a place of of devotion to God. And so he, he separated himself from everything that's worldly in pursuit of God. John the Baptist is this messenger sent to prepare the way. that's how the early church, before they ever called themselves a church, they referred to followers of Jesus Christ, to that thing, that that compelling thing that that draws us to Christ. That thing was called the way. And John says, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to prepare the way for the one who is the way. And he says in verse 7, he says, someone is coming soon. Who is it? a mystery but john says when he comes that this one who comes i'm not even fit to untie his sandals i baptize with water but he will baptize with the holy spirit he will baptize you into the mysterium tremendum and jesus arrives to be baptized and there's this incredible scene that happens. You guys remember the scene as Jesus comes out of the water. The, the clouds in heaven are, are pulled apart. The, the heavens are, are divided, are separated. And the voice of God descends, the Spirit of God descends like a dove and says, this is my son. That, uh, that pulling apart language is going to come out out again in mark it's it's almost a bookend idea it it is this idea that before jesus there is before he is named god's son before his mission and ministry is revealed there's a separation separating god from from humanity but in jesus christ there is this now this gap this opening that all the mystery of god is now being revealed to us through the person of jesus christ and in the gospel, this that, that verb of tearing or pulling the heavens apart so that the voice of God, so the Spirit of God could descend, it's the exact same verb used near the end of Mark at Jesus' death as he cries out his last. You remember that scene where the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain represented this barrier between the people and God. It was this massive, big thing, 30 feet tall and 4 inches thick, weighed hundreds of pounds, and when Jesus... Dies, the curtain is torn with the exact same word, the exact same language as the heavens being parted. That's just cool, right there, isn't it? He has authority to bring us into the Mysterium Tremendum because of who he belongs to. He is God's Son. And immediately he's led into the wilderness, that it's a time of temptation. This is a throwback again, as John the Baptist is a throwback to Elijah. Jesus' time as the wilderness is, is, a, is a throwback to another people who spent 40 years in the wilderness. Do you remember this story? Israel's in the wilderness, they've been, they've been led to this place, they're not ready for the promised land, and they've come to the wilderness to become God's people, Right? God gives them his commandments. They, they're in the wilderness to learn how to be in proper, in right relationship with God. But how do they do with that? They fail utterly, right? They failed their test of sonship. But where Israel fails, Jesus prevails. We know from the other Gospels that it's all about a test of His Sonship. If you are the Son of God. And Jesus passes His test of Sonship because He obeys the Father. He defers all power to the Father, to His God. And after being anointed with the Spirit of God, passing the test of Sonship, we come back to this awesome verse, this verse 15. The time promised by God has come at last, He brings the good news and He is the good news. He is the embodiment of the mystery of God, human and God together, and the only one who can reveal the mysterium tremendum to us. In Him, we can discover all that God is and through Him, we may enter into God's kingdom. Through Him, we may enter into right relationship with God again. Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 22. Related to this idea of mysterium tremendum, Jesus says, for everything that is hidden will eventually be brought into the open and every secret will be brought to light. This is why Jesus came. He came to reveal to us the mystery of God. Luke Timothy Johnson says in these opening verses, Mark's readers encounter the story of God's unique Son who spins history on its axis and calls for conversion, a change of heart and mind. In the story of this man, the mystery of God is at work. Maybe some of you are already feeling it. That perfect balance of fear and amazement. Maybe some of you are already being drawn into the story of Jesus Christ, into the life of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you're ready to enter the Mysterium Tremendum, experience the good news of Jesus Christ for yourself. Jesus is good news because he changes things. Every life he encounters, he changes. And that mystery, that power, is still good news today. The good news that Mark came to proclaim, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that you don't have to be separated from God. The good news of Jesus Christ is that sin does not have to be your story, that you don't have to live in guilt and shame, but there is a path to wholeness. There is a path to fulfillment through the blood of Jesus Christ. All that was lost in the garden can be restored. Restored. And so this morning, as I wrap up this time, in just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. As we wrap up this time, I invite you, just as as Mark begins, he, he begins from the very beginning, his call is to confess and repent and be baptized. And that's where I begin. What sin have you been harboring or carrying? This morning, it is time to confess that sin, to repent of it, or repent is to do a 180. Is to no longer walk in that direction, but to turn your life, to make a complete and full turn, to turn in this path, sin is this path away from God. And repentance is to turn your life and return to walk towards Him. And baptism is this outward sign of saying, I give my life, not just my Sunday morning for an hour, not just my 15 minutes around a coffee, Bible study, but I give my life every moment, every breath to you. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to, uh, to give, you, give you a chance to respond. We get to enter into the Mysterium Tremendum Acfasiosum together in the form of communion, right? This is a kind of a mysterious thing that happens each week where you're invited to, to enter into the, the body and blood, to, to consume, to take on the body and blood, to commune with the body and blood of Jesus Christ in yourself. And so in just a moment, I'll say a prayer. And we have three tables set up for you to go and to, uh, to take the bread, which represents the broken body of Christ, to, to, to take the cup, which represents his blood poured out for us so that we would be forgiven and i and i challenge you to enter into not just this this symbol not just these symbols but to enter into Christ fully to invite Christ fully into your life to it, to to confess and to repent because the time promised by God has come at last the kingdom of god is near So repent of your sins and believe the good news. If God's put it on your heart to respond during this time as we invite you to do this, I'll just move to the front, and we would love the opportunity to pray for you, encourage you, maybe you're ready to give your life to Christ in baptism. That's why we're here. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and for... uh, the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that as we, we enter into this study, Mark, for us, as your, your word, this gospel for us, wouldn't just be another story, wouldn't just be ink on a page. But Father God, we would accept the full intent, the full invitation of, of Mark, the full invitation of Jesus to enter into this mystery, mysterious, awesome, terrifying relationship with you. Father God, that we would accept your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord of our life. As we take this communion, we we recognize the sacrifice that he made to restore what was broken, to draw us who were once far away, who were lost because of our sins, near to you again. Father God, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in remembrance of him and his life that we enter into this time of communion. We love you, Father, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says.